The rain falls warm and wet this night, in heavy drops that burst and become rivulets, wending their way down the bark of trees and the veins of leaves, and the muck-laden form of the macabre man-thing. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. On this episode, I will be talking about Adventure into Fear number 18, A Question of Survival. I'll also talk a little bit about a certain stereotypical kind of storytelling. But first, I want to talk about the current Man-Thing run by R.L. Stein, specifically Man-Thing number two. Now, on the last episode, I talked about uh, issue number one and... Um, Oh, spoilers, by the way. By the time this comes out, which will no doubt be ridiculously late, issues one and two will have been out for a long, long time, so if you were going to read them, you probably already have. But still, uh, spoilers if you care about such things. So, anyway, on the last episode, I talked about how I didn't really like the way Stein was approaching the character of Manthet. I said that the humor was just a bit off, and the characterization of Manthing was... Interesting, but not to my liking. I did, however, say that I expressed a hope that it could get better and head in a different direction. That, in fact, has happened. Issue number two is much better, and it is headed in a different direction, but only slightly. Issue two starts off exactly where issue one left off. As you recall, Man-Thing has regained his memories of Ted Salas, the man he used to be, and has regained the ability to talk and reason and has set off to Hollywood to become a film star. It feels really strange to say that out loud. At the end of the issue, Man-Thing is attacked in front of a movie theater by another Man-Thing and a battle ensues. It turns out that the other Man-Thing is the baser animal form of himself, and after a brief punch-up, the two merge and combine into one, and the recombined monster is then transported back to Florida to the nexus of all realities. Man-Thing then finds he has lost the ability to speak. However, he can still scream from his mouth. Uh, he then notices things being out of place, black vultures around that, that don't belong in this part of the country. Uh, swarms of bats attack. Uh, he then rescues a woman from a giant alligator. That woman turns out to be a former girlfriend of Ted's. Now, you might think that I would be annoyed by the coincidence of this. Uh, not at all, actually. This is the nexus of all realities. Coincidence is to be expected, so, you know, no worries there. That all fits in with the premise. Well then, of course, it's the swamp, so snakes come and drag her away. And Man-Thing does exactly what you'd expect. He goes off and does something else. Wait, you expected him to rescue her? Not in this story, brother. I'm sure she'll be fine wrapped in the coils of an oversized serpent. You know, plenty of time to do other stuff. Granted, he does set off to see Old Father. Who is Old Father, you ask? Well, none other than the protector of the Nexus of all realities, of course. Yeah, I haven't heard of him either. Hold on. Wait a second now. I thought Man-Thing was the protector. Apparently not in this story, but that's okay. We'll figure out who he is later 
Totally cool with that. But when Man-Thing arrives to speak with Old Father, he has been taken, and the door to the nexus of all realities has been ripped off the hinges. Oh, there's an actual physical door, apparently. All of this is well and fine. I I like that Man-Thing got out of the Hollywood thing and back to where he belongs, in the swamp, in the nexus. And I do appreciate the infusion of weirdness to the story, like the physical door, the giant alligator, the big snakes, and what have you. It's exactly what you want from a Man-Thing story. But my first thought here is one that I had when reading the previous issue. Who is the audience? The humor and style is definitely for a younger readership, or it feels that way. But let's face it, this is an obscure character, and one that, if I'm completely honest, appeals mostly to 40-something men doing podcasts in their basement, not a young adult crowd. I mean, unless I'm wrong. I don't think that I am, but I could be. I'll leave. I'll be open for possibilities there. I mean, is there a huge Man-Thing fandom in the 12 to 18 range? Or maybe he's going for the Goosebumps nostalgia group. I don't know. I just find it curious. Uh, here's an example of the humor that Stein uh, uses. During the initial fight, bystanders say in quick succession, Did the sewers back up? I think I saw this in a movie, and it stinks. And that reminds me, I forgot to take the garbage out. And then when seeing a giant alligator, Man-Thing thinks... Didn't I see this in a movie on TV? And when the snakes drag Lily, that's the girlfriend, leaving her boot, he thinks, Major fail. These boots aren't even my size. I'm a size 412. Yeah, so, yeah, and so on. It's not exactly mature. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a good quip. The trouble is, these aren't good quips. Well, not if you're, you know, over 12 getting back to the who is the audience for this thing thing. Now, I do like the fact that Stein is taking Man-Thing's newfound abilities away. <laughs> Although, I do find the fact that he has a mouth to be annoying. And I know, I know, that probably sounds immensely nitpicky. And it is. But hear me out. There's a reason. The character of Man-Thing, what makes him unique, is not simply that he's a monster. It is that he is an isolated monster, internally and externally. He cannot relate to people or anything in a typical way. He has no ears, no mouth. He cannot even think rationally. He's a blank slate, and the only way he can interact with the world around him is through feelings, emotions. He empathically connects with his surroundings, with the people around him, so that through his perspective, told in the third person, and this is important, we, the reader, get a different perspective on how people interact with one another. Firstly, Man-Thing himself, because he feels what others feel. He has a deeper connection to an individual, and he can be generous and kind and helpful. But the fact that his shape is hideous, a slimy creature, his attempt to help is usually perceived as an attack. He has no way of communicating his attentions Otherwise, every gesture just reinforces that fear, and that fear causes Man-Thing to react violently. Situations will always end in misunderstanding. This is the tragedy of the character. The need and the desire to help, to protect, 
but trapped in a form that repulses and allows no ability to explain his intent. It's, it's really sad. So by giving him his faculties back, by allowing him to interact normally in a, in a normal human way, it removes what is truly special about Man-Thing and makes him just another monster, just another pseudo-superhero. And that goes for his thinking as well. Stein uses an internal narration. What Man-Thing, or rather Ted Salas, is actually thinking. Again, this removes him from the tragic element. By contrast, Gerber employed uh, a third person, an omnipotent narration, told in a God's-eye viewpoint. This kept Man-Thing separate, kept his psyche a mysterious thing. His thinking is unusual, alien, animalistic, tinged with childlike wonder and a touch of sadness. Told in this way, a typical scene from Man-Thing's perspective can become ominous or bizarre. A non-typical scene can become surreal, even transcendent. That's why he's a great conduit through which stories can be told. Stein uses that first-person narrative, and by allowing us to hear his inner thoughts, his quippy comments and dad jokes, Stein turns Man-Thing into simply a guy in a monster suit, albeit one he can't take off. Rather than what is so truly interesting about the character, that he is an elemental being of tragic mystery. So yes, the series is getting better, but I feel it's hindered by the fact that the uniqueness of the character is being ignored, or worse, thrown away. I'll be back right after this with Adventure Into Fear, number 18. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. The easiest and most efficient way to create dramatic tension is to place a diverse group of people in a remote location, sprinkle liberally with a conflict MacGuffin, and watch the sparks fly. It's a tried and true formula, and there are dozens if not hundreds of examples. Doctor Who used this setup quite a bit, especially in the Patrick Troughton era. It was called the base under siege. You have an isolated area, say, an Arctic base or an underwater city, a deserted island, with no way to communicate with the outside world. That isolated area is populated with five or six, a dozen people, all from different backgrounds or cultures or ideologies. And then the area comes under threat, either by some outside force or by an internal struggle. The personalities in the group begin to clash, then bada-bing, drama. This formula can be utilized brilliantly, and great stories can be told using it. Think about the movie The Thing. 
either the original or the much superior John Carpenter version, an isolated group that sort of get along, but then an unknown creature infiltrates the base. No one trusts each other anymore, and the worst aspects of everyone's personalities come out. Then comes violence, destruction, spider heads, till finally you're left freezing to death in the snow. It's really great stuff. More often than not, however, this formula can lead to shortcuts. Because audiences are aware of this setup, writers can get, I don't want to say lazy, complacent maybe? Certain shortcuts are used. And by shortcuts, I mean, of course, stereotypes. These stereotypes are character sketches used using broad strokes. There are a handful that tend to be used over and over and over again. The main ones include Hero Guy. Hero Guy is handsome, charismatic, but reluctant to take the mantle of leader because of some past trauma or mistake. He'll eventually get over this due to some epiphany ex machina and save the day. There's Liberated Woman. She's smart, sassy, and strong. She can take on anything that stands in her way. Unfortunately, the menfolk don't see it that way. They only see her as a frail woman, so she constantly has to stand up for her abilities. The liberated woman usually tends to help the hero guy get to the epiphany moment, and more often than not, will become romantically involved with hero guy because, well, men tend to write this stuff. Then there's villain guy. He's just like hero guy, except... He's out for himself and willing to compromise the group to stay alive or, or reap whatever reward comes from betraying his companions. He'll get his comeuppance in the end, usually in a gruesome manner, providing a cathartic feeling for the audience because evil always gets punished and never becomes president or anything like that. Then there's Punk Kid. He's usually in his late 20s, doesn't play by the rules. He's got it all figured out, and the man ain't gonna hold him back. He's not beholden to the system. You can usually tell the punk kid by his long hair, or bandana, or a hat worn sideways. He's youth culture, or what the writer thinks is youth culture. And in the end, he'll come around to see that authority ain't so bad, being inspired by Hero Guy's actions. Then there's Guide Guy. Guide Guy is the competent fellow who knows the terrain. He can read the signs of nature and helps the group navigate trails or find shelter. He's also great at exposition when called upon. Letting everyone know the history of the area, or the legend of the tribe, or what ghost is haunting what building slash forest slash mountain slash etc. More than likely, he's Native American, but not necessarily. Now, those are the main types you see in every story, but there are others that show up from time to time, like, for instance, Damsel in Distress. She's a delicate flower who just can't handle this sort of thing. Probably doesn't get along with Liberated Woman. That is until they sit down and talk about men. Then they find common ground because, well, men tend to write this kind of stuff. There's the helpless child. The helpless child is primarily peril fodder. Usually attached to damsel in distress, the helpless child is cute and precocious and will get trapped in a well or kidnapped or attacked by wild dogs. Anything generally making the situation harder for hero guy because the stakes need to be upped, people. There's racist guy. Racist guy is racist. Bonus points if he hates women. If he's older, he wears a white suit. If he's younger, overalls. More than likely, he has a southern accent. He'll say awful things at inappropriate times and generally be a nuisance. Racist guy can be villain guy, but not necessarily. If he is, then all the better reason to hate the villain. If he's not, he'll end up learning some lesson about inclusion and won't be so mean to the waiters at the club next time. There's the fat guy. Fat guy likes to eat. He hates to run or climb and gets comically winded at the slightest effort. 
Why are there so many stairs, he will lament. He's comic relief. And in the end, he'll learn nothing and just be overjoyed that there are donuts on the rescue plane. There's foreign guy girl couple. This person or people can't speak the language, English that is, and they have strange exotic ways like eating weird food, probably Asian, but anything sufficiently not American will do. Typically also comic relief and will probably learn an English catchphrase to throw in with a thumbs up sign just before the credits. And there are more, of course, many, many more. All of these character types I just described are overt stereotypes, obviously. And they are used in big, broad strokes to tell a story without having to go deep into backstory or long exposition. They are one-note, one-trait characters with zero depth. This was used in TV shows often, especially in the 60s and 70s, where shows were told in individual, one-and-done stories and very rarely told season-long story arcs. And because of the episodic nature of TV, the base under siege setup was a nifty, simple way to establish the situation, ratchet up the tension, and wrap it all up in 45 minutes plus commercials. It was narrative shorthand to tell a quick story, a forced dramatic tension to create a by-the-numbers adventure. It became so common that writers began to employ variations on the theme, combining stereotypical character traits or killing off people that you think were going to live. And it's still around. I mean, look at the show Lost, for instance. All of the stereotypical characters are there. Jack, the hero guy, the obvious leader, but with a crisis of confidence and deep-seated daddy issues. There's Kate, the liberated woman, but with a troubled past and deep-seated daddy issues. There's Sawyer, racist guy, and in the beginning at least, villain guy, but with a complicated past and deep-seated daddy issues. There's Locke, the guide guy, but he too has a troubled past. He's crippled in reality, that's a twist. And of course, he has deep-seated daddy issues. Charlie is basically the punk kid, rock and roller, drug addict, with a troubled past and deep-seated daddy issues. And then there's Jin and Son. They're the foreign couple that can't, at least at first, speak the language, and miscommunication abounds. They also have a troubled past and deep-seated daddy issues. Hurley's the fat guy, the comic relief most of the time, and I can't remember if he actually has deep-seated daddy issues, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yep, he probably does. Lost was basically a complicated metaphor for deep-seated daddy issues. But the point is that even a relatively recent show like Lost basically set up its whole premise using the tried-and-true base-under-siege framework and techniques, and they built an entire mythology around it. How well they did this is a matter of opinion, and not in the purview of this podcast, but it proves that this particular setup is still around. If you need another example, look at The Walking Dead. Now, I'm talking Walking Dead TV show. Uh, the comic's a bit more involved, but... The show is a long, ongoing story that deals with multiple topics of power, survival, politics, violence, and much, much more. It's not simply, as some have pointed out, just one man's tortured journey to pronounce the word Carl correctly. But if you look at the original setup, what do we have? As far as isolation, instead of an Arctic base or a deserted island, the whole world is essentially the isolated setting. Rick is the reluctant hero guy. Laurie the liberated woman. Shane, the obvious villain guy. Daryl, pulling double duty as guide guy and racist guy. Carol is the damsel in distress. As a twist, she later becomes the liberated woman. And of course, there's Quarrel. He's the helpless kid in danger. 
then pretty much most of the cast can fit into some form of generic character trait. Now, the show, over time, does subvert these things. That's kind of the point. But it does prove, to this day, we cannot escape the base under siege setup. The isolated, diverse group dynamic, stereotypical forced drama adventure story. In the 70s, this was used quite a bit on TV, movies, and yes, comic books. And Steve Gerber used this this basic premise in today's issue, but with a few Gerber-esque twists, as we will see. Cover dated November 1973, released August 1973. Stan Lee presents Adventure into Fear, number 18, A Question of Survival. Steve Gerber, writer. Val Mayeric, artist. Sal Trapiani, inker. Artie Simak, letterer. Linda Lessman, colorist. Cover artist, John Ramita, senior. Roy Thomas, editor. On a lonely stretch of road, Man-Thing observes a car driving erratically. Behind the wheel is Ralph Sorrell, a salesman feeling no pain. On a narrow bridge, the car collides with an oncoming bus, forcing both vehicles off the road and into the swamp. Amid the fiery wreckage crawl the survivors. Mary Brown, a nurse. Jim Arsdale, a soldier. Holden Crane, a student. And Kevin Kennerman, a young child, as well as Ralph Sorrell himself. Kevin is unconscious, so Man-Thing arrives to help the boy out of the wreckage. Mary somehow feels an instant connection with the creature. Almost immediately, however, personalities begin to clash. Holden, it seems, is philosophically opposed to life and refuses to help in any way. Jim tries to prove that not all soldiers are violent by physically attacking everyone, and Ralph repays Mary's kindness by degrading her and being totally unrepentant in killing 50 passengers. Kevin remains unconscious and a peril magnet. They all agree they need to get back to civilization, so Man-Thing leads them through the swamp. As the group of unlikely companions make their way through the swamp, they bicker and argue and insult each other. When they are attacked by a giant snake, you know, like what always happens when traveling through the swamp, Man-Thing smashes the snake, whip-like, on a tree. Afterwards, Jim explains that he just got back from Vietnam, where he spent four years being held prisoner in Hanoi. The others call him a hero, but when Holden questions this status, Jim begins to beat him to death. Granted, Holden was being an asshole, but still a bit extreme. After Jim is pulled off him, Holden then explains his philosophy of life, which is essentially nihilism told in an obnoxious, hippie sort of way. We then cut to the Kale family, so we don't forget they're still around. Jennifer is just returning from a date with her boyfriend, Jackson. Jackson? Really? Jackson. She then has a vision that makes her scream. We don't get to see that vision because it hasn't been written yet. Jonathan Kale runs out onto the porch to indicate that he too is still in this story. Andy does not appear, rendering him by default useless. Back at the main story, the unlikely group finally arrive at what they think is a small house. Ralph Sorrell then goes into full villain mode, pulling out a gun and shooting Holden for making a pretty valid point about greed and selfishness. He then patronizes Mary while killing Jim, who attempts to disarm Ralph, but can't because the half-drunken salesman is way faster than a trained soldier. Pause to reinforce sarcasm. Man-Thing then intervenes and rips the gun away from Ralph just before he can shoot Mary. Ralph then runs to the nearby house and finds a military-grade flamethrower lying around. You know, like you do. He then sets Man-Thing's head on fire. Man-Thing's melted head simply oozes back to normal, and he grabs Ralph and 
hurls him into a trash heap where he is impaled on a bottle marked 86 proof, proving Man-Thing, either intentionally or not, has a sense of dramatic irony. In a last little twist, the small house turns out to be the construction camp from the previous issues, and the workers, sans shirts, come to help just as Mary says thank you to Man-Thing, who slowly walks away into the swamp. Were you talking to that thing, miss? That monster killed our foreman. Oh? Then your foreman must have been an evil man. Sick burn, Mary. I suppose the first thing I need to address is why, when they are literally right next to a paved road, do the survivors need to travel through a dangerous swamp to get to town? Well, the answer is simple. Shut up and stop asking questions. We got a story to tell. Fair enough. Okay, so let's walk through the character types I mentioned earlier. Mary is, of course, liberated woman. She's strong, independent, and pretty much the only rational thinking person in this entire group. Jim, the soldier, fits the bill for hero guy. Ralph is obviously villain guy, with a little bit of racist guy thrown in. Or maybe in this case it would be sexist guy, a subdivision of racist guy. Holden would be young punk. The others actually even call him young punk throughout the story. And Kevin is helpless child. Literally, he is unconscious the entire time and just a lifeless bag of plot device. Man-Thing, of course, is guide guy in a lumbering, silent sort of way. The typical standard setup and characters for this type of story are here. But look how Gerber subverts the expectations. Jim is obviously the hero, a trained soldier, and grew up in the area. He's strong, handsome, a genuine leader. But Gerber makes him unhinged. He violently attacks anyone who criticizes him, mostly Holden. But he also snaps judgment on Ralph as well. True, Ralph did drunkenly kill 50 people, but but we'll get to that in a moment. Now, Holden I find to be the most fascinating of the group. He has all the hallmarks of the stereotypical youth culture of the day. Long hair, antagonistic towards authority, rebellious against society, anti-war, and a pacifist. But Gerber takes it one step further. Or rather, one giant leap further. Not only is he a pacifist, not only is he anti-violence, he's also anti-life. He believes human life itself is the cause of pain and suffering. And so, humans do not deserve to exist. This is a real cynical take on the peace and love lifestyle post-Ultimat. The shine has definitely come off the hippie ideal for Gerber. And throughout the story, Holden is the philosophical center, the moralizer. Although his philosophy is disturbing, and again, cynical beyond compare, it's, it's, it's much like Camus. Or maybe Camus on acid. He speaks of suicide as the only way out for society. And either willingly or unconsciously, we kill ourselves through what we eat, our habits, what we allow others to do to us, and to others in our name. It's not an uplifting way of thinking, for sure. And the others in the group find it grating. And it's interesting to note that Gerber takes great pains to portray Holden as abrasive and annoying and just downright awful, but ultimately, he's proven correct. He expects the worst in people, and by and large, that's exactly how they behave. 
When put in a desperate situation, the group does not rise to the occasion, but rather they sink into petty squabbles and violence. So that brings us to the villain of the piece, Ralph. Ralph is deplorable. He's a drunk. He's sexist. He's a sycophant when he needs something and a cruel bastard when he thinks he doesn't need you. And oh yeah, he killed 50 people and has no remorse. Ralph has no redeeming qualities, but that's kind of okay in this story. That's sort of the point. In this type of story, there's not a lot of room for nuance. Gerber just piles on one horrible trait after another so that when his inevitable comeuppance happens, we have more of a reason to cheer. But here, Gerber subverts the expectations again. You see, it's not the hero guy or even the young punk who take the villain down. In fact, the villain isn't taken down. Well, not in the conventional sense. He kills the heroes, and even seems shocked when the heroes don't accept their fate. Essentially, in this story, the villain wins. If it weren't for Deus Ex Man-Thing, Ralph would have succeeded in killing Mary as well, and getting away with it. The victory here is not to be celebrated. Even Man-Thing's role in the story as silent guide and protector, a role he's played several times now, he is portrayed as uninspired. He's depicted throughout the story as slumped and hunched over. The art shows him as tired, almost unwilling, just going through the motions. Even when doing the typical hero things, you know, smashing the snake or burning the bad guy, Man-Thing acts in a lazy, almost nonchalant manner, as if he just wants it to end, wants these people to go away. He'll do what needs to be done, sure, but he's not going to like it. Yeah, the victory here is not to be celebrated. As I said, this story is cynical and nihilistic in its view. Even the tacked-on, quote-unquote, happy ending seems more like a defeat. Overall, this story is fascinating. It's an interesting experiment on how to take expectations and not just subvert them, not just do the unexpected, but to tear those expectations apart and shred them. In that sense, it's a success, but it's not a pleasant story. In the end, it just leaves you with a, with a bad taste in your mouth. This is not simply satire or parody. This devolves into cruelty. It's interesting, for sure. But when all is said and done, it's not something to be reveled in or enjoyed. Back with some parting words right after this. I'm the doctor, but I'm the doctor. The definite article, you might say. Hello everyone, I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to tell you about a brand new podcast all about the fantastic series, Doctor Who. Because come on, there aren't nearly enough of those around, and one more can't hurt. I've been a fan of this show for nearly 40 years. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And I've loved it from the first day that I saw it. It's had its ups and downs, its wobbly scenery, its wilderness years, its rejuvenations and reimaginings. But through it all, it has always remained innovative, imaginative, and just damned entertaining. So join me, won't you, as I explore, story by story, both classic and contemporary, the series I have adored and that has been a big part of my life since I was nine years old. We'll examine the episodes, the artists, and the time it was made to really find out what makes this show great. The Definite Article, a Doctor Who podcast with me, Paul Matthew Carr. Trust me, it's bigger on the inside. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Also online at definitearticlepodcast.com. By the way, it's a requirement to say bigger on the inside when talking about Doctor Who. It's a rule. There's no way around it. 
Well, that's it for another edition of the Nexus of All Realities. Next time, we'll be back with some more lighthearted fare as we delve into the realm of fantasy again. We'll have Jennifer in her metal bikini, a warrior created from peanut butter, a multiverse, and a duck named Howard. That's right, it's Adventure into Fear number 19, The Enchanter's Apprentice. No more nihilistic, cynical depression, no, no. Full-on Gerber weirdness. Until then, you've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show could be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye.